Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast. It's a genuine delight today to have my good friend, Tony Hughes, who is a best-selling author. He's just about to release his third book, Tech Powered Sales, that he co-authored with Justin Michael. He's been a lifelong salesperson and running sales in the Asia-Pacific region. He's worked with major clients like SAP, Salesforce, DocuSign, and IBM. Tony, welcome. Thanks, Marcus. I'm really excited about the conversation today. Excellent. Well, today we're going to be talking about something that's near and dear to both of our hearts and should be to all of our listeners, which is the future of sales and selling. So uh, before we dig into that, would you mind giving us 60 seconds on your career highlights? Yeah, I was an entrepreneur very early in my life and I uh, built and sold a company in Australia. And at 25, I took it to the USA I learned a big lesson in America, and that's that if you can't personally sell and market, you're really nowhere in business uh, or as an entrepreneur. And when I came back to Australia, we were getting 12 years of royalties from selling the business, so I couldn't go back into that industry. And I thought, you know what? No matter where I decide to go uh, in my professional life, I need to learn how to sell. So I got a job in sales, and I became both both fascinated by it and and fell in love with it. And uh, I've been in sales since about the age of 26 moved into sales management, and for the last 12 years of my corporate life, I was CEO running the Asia-Pacific region for North American multinationals. And about nine years ago, I went out on my own doing consulting, and I currently consult to organizations including IBM, Documentum, Red Hat, Salesforce, DocuSign, uh, some of the biggest tech brands in the world. Fantastic. Okay, so Tony, let's start with the million-dollar question. Is what passes for great in sales today fit for purpose? Absolutely not. I find that most salespeople really deserve to get fired. Uh, So many salespeople can't write, and I just find that incredible, the notion that you could succeed in something in a digital era and believing that you can't write or self-market is just crazy. So many people that call themselves professionals don't even know how to use their basic tools of trade. They don't update their system of record. Imagine going to visit a doctor and you notice that the doctor was uh, taking your blood pressure, doing some tests, but didn't bother to record anything about you in his or hers patient management system. And you said, hey, aren't you going to record this in your, in, in, your, in your system of record? And they said, imagine if they said, well, look, do you want me to diagnose what's wrong and prescribe or do you want me to update my records? And I would just say, well, you're a professional. I expect you to do the both. I expect you to do both. Um, Imagine if we overheard a pilot saying, look, I really love flying, but I'm just not into lodging flight plans or filling in a logbook. You know, you just get off the aircraft. So salespeople that won't fill in their CRM system, to to, to me, is just crazy. I'd go one step further, and I do absolutely agree that the bulk of salespeople are anything but salespeople. They are order takers or zookeepers uh, at best. And they're passively hoping that they will trip up over the valley of lost prospects. And they are, I mean, COVID's been a really telling uh, moment in their careers because they found themselves completely impotent. So this then smacks of the next awkward question, is what passes for sales management fit for purpose as well? No, because as much as you and I both just kind of beat up on sellers, the reality is uh, if, for example, an organization thinks they have a forecasting problem, what they really have is a sales management problem. 
organisations have neglected the investment in training and enablement in their people. Now, there are some exceptions to that with organisations, but generally in the last 15 to 20 years, there's been a huge uh, level of underinvestment in selling. And even when there is an investment in sales enablement, skills training, even when that's done, the sales managers often don't hold their people to account uh, for applying what they learn uh, and for execution. So we all know that that, that that you can't manage what's not measured. Uh, there's a really interesting book I'd encourage uh, everybody to read called Cracking the Sales Management Code by a good friend of mine, Jason Jordan. Uh, he co-authored that book with Michelle Banzella. But in, uh, in Jason's own research, he discovered that 87%, nearly 90% of what organizations measure in their CRM systems are not things that can be managed. You know, So a lot of them are just lag indicators or noise. So I personally believe that sales management is the weak link in the revenue chain in most organizations. And as much as we get frustrated with the caliber of seller, uh, it's managers not enabling and holding to account, which I think is actually a much bigger problem. It's really worth, uh, for those of you listening, getting hold of a book called Multipliers by Liz Wiseman. And uh, it documents the difference between managers who drive positive discretionary effort and those who diminish discretionary effort. And the difference in productivity of their people is about 2.1 times higher for multipliers versus those who think that they are the um, the font of all knowledge. Now, I'm going to go one step further, and I suspect I'm going to be very unpopular with that in our own community. Is sales training fit for purpose? No. (laughs) It's a little bit sad, isn't it? Um, Yep. No, the sales training industry is largely a cottage industry. There's a few very big brands out there. A lot of those very big brands in sales enablement and training haven't really modernized what they offer. And the rest of the industry is is really filled with individuals that were maybe sales managers that lost their jobs or got frustrated with the corporate world that have hung up a shingle saying that they're a, a sales expert. But what I find is there's generally a lack of really good executable strategy. There's a lack of good imputation of of skills. Uh, People tend to focus on attitude, which is great because attitude and belief is the foundation. And we all know that selling is meant to be about making a positive difference in the life of the customer, both professionally and personally. So all those attitudinal things are strong, but I just find there's just a, a really low level of execution And, uh, you know, right now we're in the middle of the fourth industrial revolution. And what's really been going on in the last 18 months, you know, as COVID has swept the world, it's really been a catalyst that has accelerated some big trends that were going on anyway. And my view is about one third of field business to business sellers are in the process of disappearing this decade. I think, Marcus, you're probably of the view that it may not take the decade for that to be fulfilled. I'd be amazed. Um, And I think what will happen, what COVID has done is it's proven that breathing someone else's air and drinking their bad coffee is not a superpower. And what I've seen is a growth in the channel. I think a lot of direct sales forces, CFOs and CEOs are going to have to look at themselves in the mirror and ask themselves, why are we carrying this fixed cost? Where is the logic? in uh, having highly paid, highly skilled people uh, and popping them on a plane and losing out of 260 days a year where they're out in the field, 
probably 130 days of that is spent in travel. And it just does, it beggars belief that anyone would run their business that inefficiently. You then look at the intrinsic inefficiencies within the sales and marketing process. And based on 40 million cold calls a year, and this is the data from Connect and Sell, it's 33 dial attempts to get one effective during the COVID period, unless you're calling a senior exec in IT, in which case it's 46 dial attempts to get one effective. Only one in 14 effectives results in a meeting. And the evidence that I've seen is only one in seven, uh, sorry, one in eight first meetings result in a second meeting. That means you make 3,240 dials to get one meeting to advance. If you ran your finance department in the same half-assed, slipshod manner that you run sales and marketing, you'd be in jail inside of a quarter. So I think, uh, personally, I believe there's going to be a huge shift. Direct sales will be shifted to the channel. Order-taking will be replaced by technology. And the middle layer of management absolutely needs to be toughened up and improved. We know that 70% of learning happens post-training in the field on the job. And unless managers learn how to coach and intervene by coaching what they see, I really don't have a whole heap of um, hope for those weaker salespeople. And like you said at the beginning, most salespeople deserve to be fired. I reckon that's in the 98% range. Yeah, Marcus, it's funny you say that because my business partner at Sales IQ, we're, we're an, an e-learning platform for B2B selling. Uh, he's he's famously said that um, knowledge or training without application is mere entertainment. Yeah. But the reality is knowledge without coaching and accountability from the manager is a waste of money, <laughs> you know, is, yeah. is uh, really the answer. Well, so, I, so I absolutely agree with you. Tell me this then, Tony, why is it? that learning and development measure the smile sheets and retention, not the implementation and the results when it comes to training and coaching? Well, the answer to that's really simple, and it comes back to the law of self-interest, which is people don't want to be accountable. You know, it's the same reason for why is it when you go to a marketing manager and you seek to roll out KPIs or metrics by which they and their team are measured, based on the number of MQLs that convert to SQLs that convert to revenue, <laughs> right? So let's actually measure what converts to revenue. Everyone goes weak at the knees, right? So Absolutely. they're very happy to measure net promoter scores and brand mentions and all of those other things. But people just don't like, don't, don't like being held to account. It's interesting. If you talk to a salesperson and say, I need your forecast, often what they do is they try to tell you a bedtime story. And uh, I, was, I was talking to one leader on the weekend here in Sydney, <laughs> and he it said to me, to sleep. <laughs> well, but he actually said to me, he, he, his, his line is, and he, he says, look, I'll, I'll ask the salesperson, you know, what's the forecast? They start to tell me about what's going on in the deals. And they say, just, just stop, stop. In the evenings when you watch the news, 55 minutes of the 60 minutes is the news, all the things are going on. And then at the end of the news, they do something else. Do you remember what that's called? You go, yes, it's the weather forecast. He says, well, I want the forecast. I don't want the news. Right? <laughs> I, want, I want you to tell me what you think is going to happen. I don't want all of the sad stories about this person's on leave and they haven't returned a phone call and we're not sure what's going on here. I understand these variables. What's your forecast? My friend Carlos Garrido always talks about just three little pigs meet. We know what happens in the end. Just tell me, you know, tell me the outcome. 
And uh, again, all of this points to the fact that most leaders, most managers, and most salespeople are looking at the symptoms, not the cause. They're looking at vanity metrics, not the ones that actually help you to adjust your trajectory. And what frustrates me, I was interviewing Tom Matson, who's the, the absolute daddy when it comes to strategic alliances. And um, what he said was really telling. The gold standard when it comes to online training completion of courses, and these are people like Tony Robbins, Chet Holmes, is 3%. So you've got all these organizations trying to save money by doing these online programs. Um, and no one completes the damn things. Then the managers don't go on the courses, and then they don't know what they're meant to be reinforcing, and they don't reinforce or coach. So honestly, I, I'm disgusted with our profession. It's just horrific. Go on, pile in. Well, Mark, if, if I can say, the second part of that story is the reason for the first part. Yeah. The fact that managers don't do the online training in advance of their people the fact they don't do that means they're not committed to it. They don't believe in it. They don't understand it. But more importantly, they can't coach and hold their people to account for what they're doing in that e-learning. Because it's, you know, knowledge is one thing, but it's all in the coaching and accountability. Hey, um, we've been a little tough on sellers. Let's maybe change gears and be a little bit more positive, right? So as much as I believe that a third of B2B field salespeople are in the process of disappearing. Let's maybe talk about why that's the case. More negativity for a little while. Yep. <laughs> but I, I want to give people a little bit of a wake-up call. And I know, I know you subscribe to the same thing, right? The truth is a good thing. And the truth early is a fantastic thing because you've got runway. You've got enough time to do something about it. Absolutely. But, but then we'll talk about how does someone really fireproof their career in this fourth industrial revolution so that they go through 2030 and beyond in a way where they are creating enough differentiated value that really funds their their role. You know, it's funded by the customer and the employer. So um, would it make sense to jump into that? No, absolutely. In fact, you just beat me to it. So let's explore why first off. Okay. So selling should be a noble profession and it's our job to break into the world of someone that we can help. They may not know that they even need us yet, but it's our job to set a vision for a brighter future with that leader and then help them co-create the business case that funds the change and secure, you know, get, gathers and secures consensus of their team so they can de-risk implementation. And great sellers are absolutely loved by their customers. Their customers go, wow, you've helped transform my business, having much better outcomes. I'm gaining market share, stronger competitive advantage, and you really helped me do that. So that's what selling really should be about. The reality, though, uh, is that if what you transact is just a commodity, people don't want a seller in their life if they just want to transact a, a commodity. And, and you actually alluded to that, Marcus. So if it's truly a commodity, people just need to probably get out of the way. And it is more about branding, value, and creating an awesome customer experience with omnichannel engagement. So they, you know, they, they can find you online easily. They can engage on your website with an app, with a call center. We just make it easy for them to buy. And I know the last two motor vehicles I've bought, brand new motor vehicles, expensive motor vehicles. The first time I talked to the car salesperson was when they phoned me to get my credit card details for the deposit. I didn't go through a car dealer selling process. You know, and that's one of the reasons that car selling is being transformed dramatically. Every car manufacturer is adopting 
kind of the Tesla model, you know, where, you know, you're not really buying through a salesperson, you buy into the brand and they give you a great experience online. Well, Tesla was a really interesting case in point because what Tesla did was they started a conversation about the environment and the internal combustion engine. And as a result of that, they ended up having pre-orders of 167,000 units before they'd built a single car with a cost of customer acquisition of $6. Mercedes, in the same time period, sold 87,000 units at an average cost of customer acquisition of $970. And the reality is that I think there is a huge disconnect in many organizations between marketing, sales, customer success, and account growth. And that's certainly where customer experience and account-based marketing is really important. And yeah, that that uh, Tesla Model S launch was the most successful car launch in history. It was just incredible. The, the amount of pre-orders and demand was just absolutely unbelievable. So the interesting thing here is that um, a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, uh, doing a session with a room full of CEOs and I was talking about these issues. You know, what really drives sales success for a business and how do you drive that as a sales leader? In the lunch break, one of the CEOs came and talked to me and I won't say the name of the company for, for obvious reasons as I tell this story, but this company deals with, with pharmacists, not, not big drug manufacturing companies, but what we call in the Australian market chemist shops in America, they're, they're drug stores. Yeah. And they provide a lot of baseline compounds and products for them to actually make medications. In the USA, they operate around the world. In the USA in COVID, two of their biggest territories had no rep in the territory for just over two quarters. That's a long time. And when they were looking at all of their reports, they discovered that those two territories had grown more than any other territory mm-hmm. and were more profitable than mm-hmm. any other territory. And they were the two territories with no rep. And the, this company was convinced that the key to them maintaining market share and succeeding was to have reps calling regularly on the pharmacist, drugstore, chemist shop owner. They needed to maintain mind share every two weeks, drop in and see them, give them the latest data sheets tell them about any new products and specials, invite them to the golf day, you know, whatever those things were. Yep. So they went and interviewed the businesses in these territories that had no rep and they discovered some really interesting things. The view of the owners of the businesses were that the reps provided very little value. They actually took them away from serving customers. They were an interruption. Their day. Sorry, go on. They were an interruption. Yeah, they were just an interruption to the day, took them away from customers and said, look, and the information they gave me I read in your newsletter, you know, from your emails. And they said, but sh- surely, surely they provided some value. You know, we, we regard this as a very important role. And they said, well, actually, there's one thing. There was one thing that they were really helpful with. They helped me get a discount. And the company thought, what? The only value in the eyes of the customer is they get a discount on our product. They actually lower our prices. Now, these territories, all the businesses in these territories kept trading with this company without a rep, but there was no one to ask a discount. So the company ran an experiment. They said, let's pick a market that's representative of North America where we can run an experiment without ruining our big core market. And they picked Australia. And they had three reps in the Australian market. They redeployed those reps, to put it nicely. And after one year, the business has never grown more strongly and never been more profitable. And they invested, you know, enablement money resources into training 
the technical specialists on the end of the phone for when the, the pharmacist would phone them questions about product efficacy or issues. And they gave, they taught those people stronger soft skills in communication and empathy. And that made a dramatic change. So that's an example of where roles are disappearing. Because if you're watching this as a sales professional, even as a sales manager, and you think, no, no, but what I do in selling is unique. It's special. It's not like anything else. I am not going to get replaced by the bots. Think about this. In the legal profession, accounting, audit, compliance, radiology, pathology, surgery, pharmacy, pilots, soldiers, data analysts, all of these roles, all of these roles, even software coders are being replaced by AI bots and algorithms now. They can write their own code. There's software that can write its own news articles, journalism. All of these professions have been decimated. It's not just farms and factories and truck drivers that are being automated away. We are next. And the challenge is to provide the level of value that funds your role and to become, in essence, cyborg, part machine, part human, but use technology to extend your reach and increase your effectiveness in what you're doing and then apply the truly human elements that really make the difference. Very interesting. I I had a a case a few years ago where I was working with a client and uh, we redeployed a salesperson in the territory. And the following quarter with no one on territory, sales went up 30%. So they were actually a deal prevention um, uh, officer. And we see well, Marcus, that. Marcus, can I, can I challenge that? Did, did it go up 30% in the following quarter because of the momentum that Rep had created previously? You know, because there's always a momentum effect. No, uh, their pipeline was shocking. Wow. Okay, yeah. so they didn't leave pipeline behind. No, 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 no. It, it was absolutely the rep was preventing deals from happening. You see this in automotive all the time. People walk into the showroom, the buyer is silent for longer than half a second. And the next words out of the salesperson's mouth are, well, we can see if I can get you a discount. And then they go to the manager and they give them 10% off or whatever. It's ludicrous. And so th- this then comes back to this whole concept of the partnership between management and sales. But now we're also talking about the need for a really good uh, partnership between human salespeople and technology. So before we go into the good, let's deal with the bad. Because I think what I have seen in the last five to eight years is an explosion of technology spaghetti. I've been into a number of organizations over the last few years. And you look at the mishmash of stuff, which the functionality crosses over. So they're paying two, three, four times for the same functionality. And they're not properly integrated. They're not well-structured. And the net result of this is that you end up with salespeople who spend most of their time on administration and on uh, poorly executed technology funnels and uh, lead magnets and sequencing that essentially is poorly timed, irrelevant, and delivers zero value. So most of the time, it just goes into spam. So what's your advice to people when looking at their technology stack as it is at the moment before we go into what great looks like? Yeah, so let's let's look at the stack, the what, what I call the essential stack. We've published this in the new book, Tech Powered Sales. But right now, uh, there absolutely is a Cambrian explosion in tech. 
And the truth is most sellers treat their tech stack like their gym membership. You know, so someone's paying the fee every month, but they hardly ever go. You know, I find with most sellers, I say to them, show me how you would build a dashboard for a campaign that you'd like to run in your CRM system. They just stare at you blankly. I'll say, show me how you'd build a Boolean search in Google to try and go and find the data that you need to understand a particular buyer persona. For example, you know, how is a CFO measured? What are the CFO's KPIs in the fast-moving consumer goods industry? If that's who you're targeting with your campaign, well, you sure as hell had better have some kind of idea about how they're measured in their role. Otherwise, you've got no chance of creating a conversation that would be relevant. So show me how you're going to go and find out what the KPIs are for a CFO in fast-moving consumer goods or retail. No idea. I'll say, oh, well, let's let's jump into Sales Navigator, LinkedIn Sales Navigator. That's got a beautiful Boolean search wizard in it that's easy. Show me how you would use Navigator, you know, to monitor for trigger events that'll mean that you just do warm calls instead of cold calls. Again, they have no idea. So it's not just the stack, it's knowing how to do the basic things with the tool. So everybody needs what I call today TQ. We know that you can't be dumb and be successful in your IQ. Yep. You need EQ, you need to understand yourself and others, but you also need TQ, technical quotient. So here's the essential stack. Right at the heart of it is obviously a phone, a smart device and a phone, right? But but beyond that, you need CRM with marketing automation embedded, right? So you, you need a system of record about the people you're targeting, prospecting, leaving messages for, sending emails. You'll look like an idiot if you're running lots of outbound and you can't remember well, no one can remember what they'd need to. So you need a system of records. So single source of truth about customers and prospects. If you're a leader, you need CRM because you want to bring sales, service, marketing, and support all together to support end-to-end customer lifecycle and deliver good customer experience, whether it's direct or through partners. But as an individual, you need this for execution. The next thing you need is what we call social networked intelligence tools. That, that'd be a thing like LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Next thing, the third thing today, it's an emerging piece of tech, but it's called sales engagement platforms, SEPs. And that's things like uh, SalesLoft, uh, Outreach.io, Zant. These are these platforms within which you can design your sequences and a cadence. So a sequence is what messaging are you going to run through what channels, in what order, and then cadence is what what's the rhythm of that? Are you going to go at them every three days, you know, once every 10 days? So cadence and sequence in these platforms called the sales engagement platform is really important. The fourth thing uh, is data enrichment tools. A good one globally would be Lucia. Uh, if you're in Europe, uh, Lucia, some say Lusha, but it's L-U-S-H-A. It's a word that is Eastern European for grandmother. <laughs> the idea is if you went into a village and you wanted to know anything about anybody in the little village in Europe, go to the old grandmother. She just knows everything. But in America, it'd be a platform like uh, Zoom that uh, acquired Discover.org. In the Australian market, Ryan, there's an amazing new company called Trigger. But what they do is they ethically source email addresses, mobile phone numbers, And platforms like Trigger uh, even run headless browser technologies that sniff all sorts of tech in the stack. They look at what roles they're hiring for. They find out where most of their employees are coming from. So they give you a whole lot of intelligence that enables you to warm up a call 
phone them direct and have context in the conversation. So they they would they would probably be the top four. Now, if I was going to go beyond that in the essential stack, there'd be three other things: trigger event monitoring. That's just critical. Trigger events, role-based trigger events are the most powerful because they combine something that uh, makes us relevant and provides context in the mind of the buyer. Uh, and if you can combine that with, with a role change, make it a role-based trigger event, and it's someone you know, you've got context and trust working together. It's just insanely What's, powerful. What sort of platforms are you talking about there? Would that be Navigator looking at people? Yeah, so, yeah, so Sales Navigator can monitor for role-based changes. Uh, this, this platform, Trigger, does that as well. But again, one of the problems is the more senior the person is, the less this is true. But on average, it takes a person a month and a half, 45 days, before they update their LinkedIn profile when they change a role. So even if you're using LinkedIn, you're probably a month and a half late. And what happens is if our competitor is smart, if we think about our own account, a key supporter of ours leaves, well, we want to congratulate them on the role change to another company and follow them in. But then our supporter gets replaced, maybe by someone that worked with our competitor. And if our competitor's smart, they'll be following that person into our account. We need to manage that risk. But then as we perform for that new person, we can ask them about the company they came from and get a referral to another organization. So these trigger events have a domino effect. This is, this is the way to sell smart as well as hard. The second last thing I'd put in the essential stack is parallel, parallel assisted dialers. And that's absolutely Chris Beal's technology from Connect and Sell, right? So if you're going to be going back onto the phone and we all need to, you need to do it very intelligently. And then the last thing is collaboration and engagement. Uh, tools, you know. So, for example, commercial Zoom accounts, you know, that you can use. We're using Zoom to record this, but those things that help us do remote selling effectively. So, that that's what I would describe as the essential stack. Excellent. Okay. So, uh, again, if we look at the shocking inefficiency of marketing and the lead generation process. The bulk of salespeople's time is spent dialing dead numbers, not getting picked up, getting voicemails, being blocked by gatekeepers, calling back. So in terms of management tools, in order to help management focus their attention and creativity on eliminating those inefficiencies, what would you advise? Okay, so this is not so much about a tool as it is about a mindset and a strategy and good execution. So the first thing is every company needs to be brutally honest with itself about product market fit and on that basis, clearly define ideal customer profile. So if, for example, let's just say, for example, that you sell to law firms, legal firms, you need to adopt the mindset, well, not every law firm is an ideal customer for us. No. An, ideal, an ideal law firm will be of a certain size. They'll be located in a particular geography or geographies. They might have some existing technologies they're already working with. They might have an area of specialization. Um, so you think about firmographics. So that's the geo, vertical, size, revenue kind of information. You then think about psychographics. So is this, is this a law firm that's seeking to innovate you know, have they got a growth mindset? Are they wanting? Are they are they innovators at heart? Are they open to change? Um, are they in growth mode? Are they in crisis mode? 
So we know, for example, a lot, a lot of roles in the law, in the legal industry have gone away. Uh, when companies do due diligence on M&A, a lot of that's automated now, so they've used yeah. tech. Um, and then the third element that you look at when you think about uh, ideal customer profile is technographics. You know, what are the technical things in place, the common things our best customers have? So you think about product market fit, ideal customer profile, so we know who we're targeting very clearly because you don't want your precious, expensive sales resources being applied to where there's low propensity to buy. So you're trying to solve that problem. This is really interesting. Um, and I have, a, you know, full disclosure, a very vested interest in this. I've recently taken over as Chief Revenue Officer for a company called White Rabbit. Um, oh, what White Rabbit does. Love White Rabbit. Uh, go ahead. Oh, well... I was researching for the new book, Tech Powered Sales, and I think White Rabbit just got in because it's relatively new, right? You, you guys yeah. are doing great things. What's really interesting, and it speaks to what Tony's just been talking about, your ideal customer profile, your ICP shifts subtly over time. Uh, if there's a momentous event like COVID, it shifts uh, very dramatically quite often. But you should be reviewing your ICP as frequently as the length of your sales cycle. So if you have a 90-day sales cycle, you need to review your ICP every 90 days. And the problem is that if you don't, then you'll find yourself targeting just slightly off target. And we had uh, one client who for the last four years had been targeting the wrong ICP. We ran the data through the system, and within two weeks, their sales were going through the roof. In a month, they went from one new customer to seven new customers a month. That's the difference between sticking with your ICP and being lazy and running it through an AI that does all the work for you because it does the technographics, psychographics, firmographics, and everything else. We had a construction client who came to us and said, we want to speak to more decision makers. Classic that kind of request. When we ran the data, what we identified was that if they targeted buildings and building owners that ran on a north-south road with an east-facing front entrance, uh, had a flat roof and was made out of concrete and steel, built between 1970 and 1990, their sales would go up. Within two months, sales were up 40%. Wow. Now, wow. this tech is out there. And the problem is that most people are fixated on doing what they've always done. Working with a telemarketing company, we've been able to increase their telemarketers' productivity by 1,400%. Marcus, I, I, I love that. Let me, let me read you something I, I put in this new book because it speaks to what you just described. The future of B2B selling is when buyer sentiment meets seller relevance with human engagement powered by tech that melts away as humans focus on the higher value interactions. But if you can use tech to find where there's that higher propensity to buy, when we spring from the bushes with a conversation or an email, we're relevant to that person, right? Much higher hit rates. Uh, absolutely. And you have to be timely, you have to be relevant, and you have to deliver value. Now, without wanting to continue plugging White Rabbit, what this kind of technology has, and I'm sure there will be others out there soon, is it frees up your reps. Instead of spending their time making 33 pointless dials or 32 pointless dials, 
to have one effective and 14 of those, only one goes through to a first meeting. It means that it frees your time up to do your research. Tony was talking about making sure that when you do speak to those prospects, you're relevant. Well, you can do your research, you can plan, you can do rehearsal, which again is something that is dreadfully lacking because salespeople say, I don't have time for planning and I don't have time for rehearsal. Of course you damn well don't because you're not doing it. (laughs) You've got to think about what the knock-on implications are. And almost without exception, every company that I've ever been into in the last 18 years, within minutes, I've been able to find 400% growth potential simply by eliminating wasted activity on stuff that is unproductive and entirely avoidable. Yeah, and why why are we talking to people that have a very, very low probability to buy? So, Marcus, I agree with all that. Just to round this out, the third thing, the third thing is know your buyer personas. Yeah. So if, if you don't understand the people in their roles that you'll be selling to, so you might need to get the CEO, the CFO, the head of IT, the head of HR, a line manager. You have to get them all on board these days. You need to know, know those people in their roles. And then the fourth thing in all of this is nail the conversation narrative. As you say, provide value in the conversation. But you can't nail your conversation narrative unless you know your buyer personas within the ideal customer profile in a particular industry. Well, th- this again is where I think sales has taken a very wrong turn because sales doesn't seem to have been valued by leadership and investors as it should. And as a result, what they've done is they've built these armies of willing but ignorant salespeople who don't really understand the moving parts. When people are making the kind of complex investment decisions that they are, they're trying to make the right decision and not end up with egg on their face. They're attempting to add value to their business. And if you do not understand the moving parts behind the place where you're going to make the sale, and you don't understand the implications of that, and you don't understand what it can replace or how it can drive the broader value within the business, then you will be treated like a commodity provider and you will act like a transactional seller. And this is where I think things went really wrong 40 years ago when Milton Friedman came up with the uh, the big lie which is that companies have been set up exclusively to deliver shareholder value. Henry Ford said that a company that is only set up to make money is a bad business. The business is there to provide value to the customer. We exist because of, not in spite of the customer. Buyer safety has to be central and paramount. And this is something that is sadly lacking, where salespeople are told, go out and close anything that you can so that we can make this month's uh, quota. We've also got to get away uh, from the idea that it's a numbers game. Selling is anything but a numbers game. Yes, you have to have a certain level of activity. But in my experience, when you are really focused and really targeted, the founder of uh, my telemarketing client, who I'm chairman of their business, he identified 10 companies and 10 individuals. And in three conversations in the first 18 minutes of the day, he booked three ideal meetings for his client. Now, that is efficient. Yes. So he made the company seven and a half thousand pounds. 
in the first 18 minutes of his working day. Wow. Now that is good business. That's good selling. We seem to have lost the intelligence because of this obsession with growth and revenue and transactional behavior. Well, Marcus, and the thing that's going on is there's a lot of insidious trends that are conspiring against sellers. Average deal size is getting smaller. Sales cycles are being pushed out and protracted. More and more decision makers, more and more competition, even if there's not physically more competition, it feels like there is because the customer can find all those competitors more easily. So, so selling's becoming, it's more difficult to, to break through and drive engagement as well in the last 18 months. And the reality is a lot of sellers are just getting busy, but they're busy fools. We have to get good at using tech. And again, without plugging White Rabbit for you, like, you know, it's a piece of tech that enables someone to be effective. And for those that are listening to this, it was, it was 25 years ago, a quarter of a century ago, that a computer first beat the best human in the world at chess. Wow. Gary Kasparov, right? It's a quarter of a century ago. Yeah. Now, back then, it was just brute what-if analysis that enabled it to do that. But then in 2011, IBM Watson won Jeopardy against the best Jeopardy masters in the world. And Jeopardy is a weird, natural language, abstract context game. And the IBM Watson computer was disconnected from the internet that competed in the games of Jeopardy. It was the size of a small bedroom. Now the Watson computer is the size of two pizza boxes, right? This is how <laughs> that technology is going. And, and that was 10 years ago. About five years ago, AlphaGo beat Lee Sedal, the world champion at the game Go. He was the 18 times world champion. Now, Go is the most complex game on the face of the planet. There's more potential moves in Go than there are atoms in the universe. Can you believe this? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. There are more potential outcomes, moves in that game than atoms in the universe. And uh, in game three, there was a thing called move 37 where the AlphaGo computer did a move that there was only a one in 10,000 chance a human would have ever made. And it won the game. It taught itself how to play. So it was just absolutely phenomenal, right, the level of ability. So computers can now teach themselves and three years ago, three years ago, this, this, this was a sensation at the time, and now it's all gone quiet for three years. But Google Duplex, it's an AI voice computer. You can pick any yeah. accent you want, a Geordie accent, a New York accent, an Australian accent, male, female. You could hear it phoning businesses, booking appointments, hairdressers, restaurants. Yes, I remember. People on the other end of the phone had no idea, zero idea they were dealing with a computer. So it passed the Turing test. Now, that's all gone very quiet. I think the legislators would have a field day and the public would, you know, there'd be an uproar if computers were telemarketing at volume, right? But the tech is incredible. And if you're not harnessing the tech to make yourself effective, even on finding, using lookalike technologies to find your ICP, you know, monitoring for trigger events, then you're at a huge disadvantage. So again, to give your book a plug, Justin Michael, your co-author, cited uh, a case study of him uh, making 130 dials, 88 effectives, and booking 33 meetings in one day. That is the power of an AI-human partnership. And it's just breathtaking. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, it is. I, 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 I agree with you. And, and maybe a good place to sort of wrap up the conversation would be, how do, how do you future-proof your career as a seller? Absolutely. So if we think about tech, 
tech is amazingly powerful at, at ingesting, categorizing, and recalling huge amounts of very big data, right? So it's very good at that. Uh, it's good at monitoring for trigger events. It's good at looking at things like what-if analysis, pattern matching, making recommendations, you know, getting AI into CRM, recommending next best action with what's going on, automating basic tasks. So it's good at all those things. We need to harness tech, get good at using tech for that. Where we need to focus is the really human elements of fun and humor, storytelling, transferring belief and trust. Selling's about infecting the other person with your genuine belief, you know, that there's a much better way for them in their business. Humans are good at managing ambiguity and politics, creating some kind of vision and securing consensus amid all of the politics, building a business case, imagination, curiosity. They're the things people are good at. So as a seller, we want to gravitate to where there's a lot of complexity, where there are expensive decisions. That's where there'll always be a role for people. If it's a commodity, if we don't get ourselves out of the way, we'll end up being replaced. And on that note, I think what we really have to understand as sellers is we must start thinking as the customer. You don't think about them. You have to think as them. You need to be able to put yourself in their world. And that requires infinite flexibility because even in the smallest organizations, you're probably looking at three to five key influencers and decision makers. And in enterprise, you're looking at 11 to 12 decision makers. Now, prior to COVID, it was about seven. But the average salesperson speaks to, on average, about 1.6 to 1.92 buyers. And then they wonder why everything goes tits up when it comes to the 11th hour. And all of a sudden, that what they thought was a done deal is no longer a priority. And so let, let's just wrap up with the qualities of what make a future-proofed great salesperson. Let's talk about that. What do you think they are? Okay, so you have to have high IQ in an increasingly complex world. You need high EQ, emotional quotient, good at understanding yourselves and others, reading other people, navigating politics, using empathy to, to build real rapport. You then need to add on to all of that TQ. So you need technical quotient. Learn how to use these technology platforms like Sales Navigator, like White Rabbit, you know, all of these other platforms, like this emerging sales engagement platform technology for automating your, your email and your cadences and, and sequences. And then on top of all of that, I think you need to work out how to build yourself a platform. So I know, Marcus, you talked about this proliferation of spaghetti tech that no one uses well and they just bumble around confused. But I think the best sellers recognize, hey, I need to be a micro-marketer uh, as well as an effective seller. Absolutely. I've got to organize how to create my own sales pipeline using technology and, and by delivering genuine insights and value and conversations to people. So, that, so you'll get your own tech stack that you'll take with you from job to job. Uh, on average at the moment, a tech startup is spending about $1,000 US per month on a seller. That's uh, quickly going to $2,000. And I think by the end of the decade, it'll be $10,000 as we see the, the rise of digital virtual assistants that start scheduling calendar meetings, confirming things, monitoring for the trigger events, you know, doing all of the automatable tasks for a human. And I'll go on the human side. I think salespeople have to be planners. They have to be patient. They have to be great listeners. 
And listening is a whole body experience and it requires you to be present. So a degree of mindfulness is really important. You need to be willing to do the hard graft up front so that you're not practicing in front of the customer. You need to be habitually responsive to what your prospect is saying and feed off those responses in order to deliver really insightful questions. Then you have to be good at making sure that you're great at confirming and establishing mutual understanding and being able to create strong, sustainable agreements that weather the test of time, that weather change and also survive adversity. I think you need to be hyper-responsive. You've got to be super reliable and you have to be relevant. And above all, I think you have to be rigorously authentic. I think one of the uh, key characteristics that salespeople hate, uh, the buyers hate, is the fact that they cannot trust salespeople. And the problem with being caught in a lie isn't that they can't forgive you, it's they can't ever forget. You know, buyers need to feel safe. Every buyer deserves to feel safe in the hands of a salesperson. So on that note, Tony, tell me this. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back in history and you can advise the idiot Tony, age 23, when you knew everything, you were invincible and you'd live forever. What one choice bit of advice would you give him? I'll give you the bit of advice I'd give myself knowing I was about to embark in a sales career because that's where I ended up going. My advice would be, it's not about you. It's all about the customer. Don't get all wound up and stressed out in your own performance. Just obsess about the success of the customer and everything else will take care of itself. Great advice. If you are not customer obsessed and if you are not obsessed with helping them achieve success, helping them achieve their outcomes and delivering value to them, you have no role in sales. Okay. So what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? Oh, Marcus, for me, it's my, my uh, I mean, no one can manage time. So my inability to prioritize and say, no, I've got, as we're recording this, I've got nearly 22,000 unread emails in my inbox. I've got 340,000 followers and connections in LinkedIn. Everywhere I look, I've just got people bombarding me, wanting my, wanting my time. I literally nearly dropped dead just over two years ago. I do a lot of cycling. I just finished with this story. I do a lot of cycling. And despite riding more and more and losing some weight, uh, I wasn't getting faster and I thought something's wrong. I went and got checked out and they did a contrast dye CT image of my heart. They sent those images off to two human beings, two specialist radiographers to analyze the images and wrote up a report. The report came back and said I had the cardiological age of 84 And I had up to a 70% blockage in one part of my heart and some 40 to 60% blockages in others. And I cut a long story very, very short. The cardiologist was busy. He said, we've got to go up with a camera and have a look, through your arteries and have a look. The first time he could see me was when I had the holiday of a lifetime scheduled in Europe, seven weeks across Europe with my family. My son had just finished uni. My daughter was just starting uni. I go and have that holiday. I'm carrying huge bags up three flights of stairs, all over Italy and France and Greece and Switzerland. And I come home and I go in to get the camera up the arm to have a look on the last day of the year that the cardiologist is working. And he stented me. I was not 70% blocked. I was 99% blocked and a hair's breadth away from dead. 
Now, his standard man, I'm okay, but that's what happens from a lifetime of stress, which is what selling will do to you. If you feel that at the end of every quarter, you age a whole year of your life, you know, just with the stress of trying to bring revenue in, do unnatural acts with clients to bring revenue forward because we don't have enough pipeline there. When you run companies, the stress all gets bigger and bigger, you know, and that and a lot of travel and being always on just literally nearly killed me. So I'm trying to dial all that back. Interestingly, the thing that took me down the path, you know, of, uh, of technology saving people and lives and changing things, those radiologists that analyze those images, there will be far few radiologists in the world because image reading tech with algorithms can do a much better job analyzing those blockages than people do. If a person has an off day, I could have died, right? And even surgery now can be done remotely with the best people on the planet, even if you're in a small little country town somewhere. So, so tech is good, but there's also going to be a lot less jobs. We've got to be the ones that think about how can technology automate tasks for me instead of technology replacing our role. Interesting. What's very interesting is the AI human partnerships in radiology have yeah. the highest efficacy, whereas one or the other, about 94 to 96% accurate, whereas right. uh, where you have AI and human beings, it's 98.9% accurate. Right. So again, what's going to be very interesting is what are the jobs for the future? So that might be an interesting conversation around the future of work. Tony, <laughs> what would you recommend people read, watch, or listen to that you'd recommend? I would, if you're a manager, I definitely read Jason Jordan and Michelle Vanzella's book, Cracking the Sales Management Code. It's just so practical. It's a really practical guide to managing effectively. If you're a salesperson, you know, I, I definitely read The Challenger Customer and The Challenger Sale. You know, they're a little dated now. Uh, you need to read both of them together. But this thing of take a worthwhile point of view to your customer is really important. If you're looking to how do I break through and create sales pipeline, my last book, Combo Prospecting is really a clarion call to action to take control of your own pipeline or your, 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 your future is a jeopardy. And my latest book with Justin Michael, Tech Powered Sales, explains how to go use all of the tech, including technology like White Rabbit, right, to, to go and find the signals in the marketplace so you apply your precious time and effort where there's the highest likelihood of success for you and your customer. Excellent advice. So uh, I can't remember Dave Brock's book on um, management. I can't remember the title, but that's really worth a read as well. Dave Brock is really good. The thing I like about Dave is that he's a physicist by background and he yeah. applies scientific method to everything that he does. And there, there isn't a wasted word or a wrong turn in any of his, and read his blogs as well. They yeah. are breathtakingly good. Um, yeah. Excellent. So... Tony, how can people get hold of you? Uh, the best way is just, just to reach me in LinkedIn, Tony Hughes. My website is tonyhughes.com.au, tonyhughes.com.au and LinkedIn. And if you're looking for my, my methodologies and how to train them at scale, uh, go to salesiqglobal.com. Excellent. Tony Hughes, thank you. Thanks, Marcus. It was great talking. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you know someone who would find this conversation useful and relevant, then please tag them and share it with them. And if you're feeling the urge and you're feeling generous or not so generous, then an honest review on Apple or Google Podcasts would be welcome, whether it's one or five stars or anywhere in between. And if you want to get a hold of me, 
marcus at laughs-last.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.